This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. My other question around like online learning and, and remote instruction too is like, where's where's the data that it's working? Um, you know, sometimes it, it, it's a good in concept, but is is it giving students like the 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 information that they need does it have like the the outcomes that we're 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 expecting um for our students did you know channel 253 is member supported i'm producer doug Mackey, and i hope you will show your support by going to channel 253.com slash membership and join thank you this is the nerd farmer podcast a national conversation through a local lens Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast brought to you by Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today, I'm really excited for our conversation. We have a uh, we have two guests on the show today. One is Jen Smith. She is the engagement editor for the Seattle Times Education Lab, and she's new on the beat, and she's awesome. You'll love her energy. And we also have Ashley Gross. She is the youth and education reporter for KNKX, the local NPR station. And we're going to talk through teacher and student mental health, what reopening might look like in the fall, uh, who is going to replace Denise Juno in the revolving door of Seattle schools, uh, civic education, and a bunch of other topics. But before we get to that conversation, I want to talk a little bit about a prior episode. So two episodes back, we had the Crossing Nerd Farm uh, cr- uh, episode with uh, Evelyn talking about the Tacoma Police Department officer assault on civilians, the vehicular assault that happened. On that episode, I talked about the lack of engagement on issues from members of the Tacoma City Council. I said in particular in that in that episode that like I wanted to hear from Councilman Blocker and if I did hear from hear from him I would eat my words and I did hear from him and I'm thankful and I want to say to Keith right now thank you for your words and advocacy. I also want to say thank you to Jeannie Darneal. She sent a letter to her constituents laying out her legislative agenda around law enforcement accountability and that and that forthrightly condemn the attacks. I also want to say thank you to the mayor for her words. I also want to say thank you to Councilmember Derek Young for his strident uh, opposition of law enforcement violence in the state of Tacoma. And I want to say thank you to Tawana Franklin for being the first elected official to respond to this issue. You'll note, though, that that means I didn't name any of the white members of the Tacoma City Council. And... I want to talk to and about them for a moment. When you, as an elected official, abdicate your responsibility to stand up for marginalized people in times of justice, and in particular, when you abdicate the responsibility of standing up for marginalized people and leave the black folks on the council to hold police accountable and to condemn obviously wrong police actions, What you do is you make those same black people who you stand by every day and work with the target of scorn of right-wing media and police apologists. I was heartened in the early days after the incident by a statement that Chris Beal made uh, to Allison Needles that she shared online. And, And so Chris Beal talked about how he was... He, he had what he had seen happen in the video and he was deeply upset and like wanted action to take place. 
But like somebody gathered Chris and gave him a talking to, and he showed up at the meeting with a totally different tune. And I read that raggedy ass statement from Robert Toms. And I, I, I listen, I, I don't think that white folks understand how obscene it is to quote Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to black folks about police violence. Like Dr. King was a target of state violence, was a target of law enforcement violence. And like, just keep his name out your mouth when you're talking about these issues. And to the of other members of the city council who essentially are playing this super cautious, like you don't, we, we know what we need to know. We've seen the video. The officer was not facing danger. There was no imminent threat to the officer. He drove his car through a crowd and that person should not be a member of any law enforcement agency in the United States. And I'm just shocked at the lack of moral courage and the lack of leadership for folks being unwilling to say that publicly. Listen, running for office and being a representative is really hard. And like, I know that like you have different constituents and populations, but if you can't call a spade a spade when a man drives a car through a crowd for no reason, then like, I can't mess with you. And so I'm laying this out. I've supported members of the council before. I've had members of the council on the show before. I, I, I consider people on the council uh, to be my friends. But if you can't stand up for black lives and if you can't stand up against the law enforcement forces who are under your supervision, then like you don't deserve my vote and you don't deserve my support. And it's really striking to me that the elected officials who don't have overview, have to have oversight or purview over this Cone Police Department are willing to speak with their full chests about TPD and police accountability, but the folks who are supposed to supervise them can't or won't do so. What it reminds me of is how throughout the Trump administration, all these former elected Republicans, all these former officials would come out and condemn Trumpism and talk about Trump and talk about what Trump was doing. But the Republicans in Congress basically didn't do anything. The Republicans in Congress didn't vote for impeachment. The Republicans in Congress didn't vote for witnesses during the trial. That's basically you. And so if you're listening to this, like no shade, no smoke, like I, this is, this is business. This is politics. Like I, I respect you as people. I like you as people, but like I'm laying down the marker right now. If you will not stand side by side with Councilmember Blocker, if you will not stand side by side with Tawana Franklin and the mayor, if you will not stand side by side with Jeannie Darneal and advocate police accountability and the firing this officer and the removal of city manager, then like you don't have my vote. You don't have my support. I can't mess with you. All right. So that's my take. That's my take. And I'm sure I'm going to get DMs about it. I don't care. That's my take. This is a conversation today that we're going to have is about education. And so I want to get to that conversation with Ashley and with Jen because like they deserve, they, they deserve like this full moment. So let's get to that conversation now. I'd like to welcome you both to the show. Uh, Jen, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing wonderful, Nate. It's great to be here with you all. It's good to have you too. So this is your first time on the show. So I want to turn to you first off. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, can you introduce yourself and your work as the engagement editor at EdLab? Sure. So again, my name is, is Jen Smith. I use she, her pronouns. And I uh, just joined the education lab at the Seattle Times back in uh, about mid-October. So I'm, I'm still pretty new. I spent 15 years before that on the opposite coast uh, working for another legacy newspaper called the Berkshire Eagle, where I uh, covered a lot of ground, um, predominantly education, and I was also the community engagement editor there. 
but yeah, uh, if anything blew up, burned down, crashed, uh, uh, or anything like that, I did general news and, and um, uh, uh, business news, things like that there. Then I uh, came here. It's a great opportunity. I think what what makes Ed Lab, Education Lab, uh, so great is that it's a team that's dedicated towards um, looking at particularly public K-12 um, uh, issues and the, the education landscape there. And, uh, you know, journalism is so good at saying, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is what's going wrong. Um, but we also try to look at solutions. We really partner with the Solutions Journalism Network and we try to say, okay, let's take a pause from looking at what's wrong and, and see what's working towards making it right. And that's uh, my favorite part because that's where the community comes in because that's who's making the change. Um, so that, that in a nutshell is what we do. And I'm really excited that there are now many education labs that are um, popping up across the country. And I think the more teams we have looking at education, the better. And um, I love that Ashley also came over to the education beat side as, as well, because we need more voices, more people looking, um, looking at what's going on because it affects all of us as we're definitely learning in this pandemic. Here, 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 here. And for longtime listeners, uh, Jen is currently now occupying uh, Mo's old spot, and Mo's old spot was Dahlia's old spot. And so we have a tradition of having this position on the show to talk about education issues. So, Jen, welcome to the show. Well, thank uh, you. Ashley, welcome back. The last time I had you on, we were talking about budget issues in Kent, if I recall correctly. Yes? That's right. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And welcome to you, Jen. Thank you. So, Ashley, I'm really curious. You have a beat that is called K-12 Education and Reporting on Youth Issues, yes? Right. Mm -hmm. How has how has your reporting and your day-to-day -day been shaped and changed by the pandemic? I mean, completely, completely upside down, topsy-turvy. I mean, I think back to a year ago, and it's just, um, it's just hard to believe that I'm living in a world now where almost all kids, I mean, not almost all, but at more than half of kids are learning from home in Washington state and that teachers are having to teach through Zoom and uh, and that nobody's going or very few people are going into school buildings. It It's just a I feel like I'm on a different planet sometimes when I think about it. Um, you know, I had covered online schools before this and um, and thought to myself, like, how bizarre to send your kindergartner to online school. And now there's, you know, thousands of kindergartners learning, you know, kindergarten stuff from their bedrooms. So it's just crazy. I love the term kindergarten <laughs> stuff because like, I don't know what kindergarten stuff is either. <laughs> let, let me tell you, I, I was actually uh, before I, you know, when I graduated college, I had like multiple jobs. And so I spent a lot of time as a substitute teacher um, and kindergarten stuff. You forget that's where you learn to like tie your shoes, to not have a, a meltdown, although we're all trying to do that these days, um, you know, um, just those basics, but also like making friends, um, you know, just learning how to how to sit at a table and eat, you know, all, all of those things. I have so, so much, much uh, credit and, and respect for anyone who teaches at those early grade levels. No, no, absolutely. Right, exactly. Uh, no, former show contributor Kat Rodriguez was a kindergarten teacher for a year. And she sat me down one day and explained the concept of wet laces to me. And I was just mortified. Like, 
sometimes kids come to classrooms with, well, particularly boys, come with wet shoelaces and mm-hmm. it's not raining outside, which means <laughs> they have pee pee on their shoes from the boys' bathroom. And yeah. like when she explained that to me, I was just like, the job you have and the job I have are totally different jobs. And like, mm-hmm. I just, like, I, just hold on. I, if you are a kindergarten teacher and you're listening to this episode right now, tweet at me and give me your uh, cash tag handle and I will buy you a beer because you are a saint. I swear, I swear, I swear. All right. So, yes, bless. I didn't ring you all up to talk about kindergarten teachers. What I want to do is, is I feel like one of my favorite things is to talk to journalists about what they're thinking about and looking at. I oftentimes know that like for every story you cover, there's three or four you wish you could cover or you were looking at or like some editor didn't think was important. And so what I want to do is I want to have you all kind of do a notebook dump for us and talk through what are some of the stories that you're looking at, focusing, paying attention to, what's on your radar or on your periphery for 2020 uh, on education issues. And it could be super local. It could be national. I'll take whatever you got. And what we'll do is we'll go through a, uh, a kind of top five ed issues to look for in 2021. I almost got that wrong. 2021. There we go. <laughs> um, so, Jen, as the first time guest, I'll give you first crack. Like, what's a number five issue that you're focused in looking at this year? Yeah. Um, so, gosh, it's it's hard to prioritize um, what order you look at things, right? I think you have to look at the what I call the COVID effect on everything. So it's not just how this pandemic is prioritizing or not prioritizing teachers to get vaccines. It's not just about getting kids back in the building, but it's also looking at those long-term effects, right? So in, in education lab, um, actually Dahlia, uh, my predecessor uh, was over in Port Angeles and um, where schools had, had begun reopening and looking at lessons that, um, it could offer all Washington schools or, or any schools. And it's it's not just like flipping the switch, right? It's, um, there are so many adjustments, readjustments to routine, just thinking about having to get up and get on that routine of getting to school on time. And after you've, you've had all this flexibility, um, being in a new environment, being in a classroom with people, uh, again, um, that, that, is going to feel um, like being on a, a new planet for a little bit and and bring what you bring into that classroom. Um, and that's loss in a lot of ways, right? It's It could be loss of a family member, a loved one. It could be loss of you know income in your household and how that affected you. Um, I, I hear of older high school students having to find jobs during this pandemic or, or, or take on the role of helping with parenting if they hadn't been doing that already. Um, so there's when you're you're looking at that that lens, and I think the undercurrent of any of these issues that we talk about today is definitely mental health. Um, and it's it's you know teachers are, are definitely worried about how students are coping, but we can't forget how how teachers and administrators are dealing doing with right things right now. Um, because there's a lot of of tough decision making that happens, and it's not pleasing everyone. Um, so, so that's kind of like the, the, the blanket, uh, you know, that's, that's the undercurrent for everything. No, for sure. And it's interesting when we talk about mental health, because I think for the most part, we're focused on students, but like educator mental health is real. Can you imagine being a school nurse right now? I mean, the, no. the pressure, you, you, the, you're like the new front line and not every school has a school nurse. What the answer is no, I can't imagine it. No, like, yeah. I, like, I, I literally can't. Mm-hmm. That teacher burnout issue is something that I had on my list too, my number three, um, that um, I 
um, I feel like there was already a lot of burnout before the pandemic hit among teachers. Uh, a lot that I spoke with just were, they were just exhausted, worn out at that, you know, that they'd reached kind of the end <laughs> The they, um, and, uh, and so I kind of feel like that is one element go behind the scenes in this um, standoff that we're seeing between districts and teachers unions about going back is that they're operating from such a low level of trust from before mm -hmm. the pandemic and overwork and exhaustion. And so I think that's why it's not such a straightforward matter of being like, yes, we're going to have these attestations and these, you know, um, uh, temperature checks and, and frequent sanitation and you're good to go. It's, it's just that they have, they're climbing a steep hill. I mean, you probably have a lot to say about that, Nate, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> well, no. So like here we don't have athletics this year. And so our athletic director is the director of movement. And so his job is to handle all of the social distancing, all of the like signage that has to happen on campus. And we started off remote and then went back in person with the upper grades. We're a K-12 school and then went back uh, in person with the lower grades and then went full remote. And so like our middle school students and our ninth grade students have been remote the entire time. Our high school students were on campus for about eight or 10 weeks. Our elementary students on campus for a little bit longer. But like it's it's bam, bam, bam. And so for the mm. teachers who the teachers who have had students remote for a year are struggling with keeping those students engaged for very obvious reasons. And we've had several moments of, oh, we're going back. So everyone go get tested. And then we're not going back because it's outside of our control and, and the national authorities make the call. And so, yeah, that mental health, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised to see that on the list. Mm. Uh, Ashley, how about you? What's what's your number five issue you're looking at? Um, my number five issue, um, it has to do with how kids are taught to read. Um, there were some really great podcasts done by Emily Hanford of APM Reports, um, I think starting in 2017, maybe, or 2018, all about how um, kids with dyslexia are not, um, are, are going undiagnosed and that the way that kids have been taught to read has, um, has not served those kids well. So there's been kind of a, a trend away from teaching phonics in a systematic way. And there's um, been a long debate about how to teach to read and whether if you surround kids with books that they're interested in, will they just kind of pick it up um, versus being systematically taught. These are the sounds that you need to learn to decode English words. And it's called the science of reading. And um, and that was really uh, becoming a big topic in education, uh, largely because of these podcasts and uh, teachers were starting to shift to, you know, using, considering other curriculum, getting training in these things called um, uh, um, Orton-Gillingham, these different specific methods that are used for teaching reading. And I feel like I haven't done any reporting on it. I've just been too busy on it, but I do feel like that momentum has been like stopped in its tracks. And, um, and that is really sad. There's a screening law in Washington state that's supposed to go into effect this coming fall where districts are supposed to screen for dyslexia. So there's been this like movement um, over the past few years to get, you know, kids identified earlier and to make sure that kids are learning 
you know, the proper methods for decoding words, but it definitely feels like the pandemic has kind of thrown a wrench into all that. So that's one thing I would like to look into and figure out, you know, how have teachers even been teaching kids to read right now mm-hmm. through remote learning and, and how can they, you know, make up for the ground that's been lost when, when they do come back to school buildings. Mm-hmm. And, and that's I, such, Oh, go ahead, Nate. No, please, please go ahead. I was just going to say, and it's, it's something that I've learned is over the years is so critical, right? Like, so a lot of people look at third grade reading scores and say, you know, if, if you're not at grade level reading by third grade, um, then you're really going to struggle because you're, at, you know, up until grade three, you're learning to read. And then um, after grade three, you're, you're reading to learn. And um, so that's the thing when we have, you know, young learners who are just struggling um, at that, that those in those formative years right now. I mean, imagine, I, I think maybe we can all recall our first days of, of kindergarten or preschool and having that experience. And then, you know, having that tactile, that, that teacher just showing you being surrounded by a library of books. Um, before I came out here, I got to go back to school um, to one of our smaller schools that was reopening. And that was one of the things that was missing that, that classroom library because they were keeping all that stuff to themselves. So I, I completely, um, I'm glad you brought that up, Ashley. I almost think that like, the fights in education are oftentimes on 15-year cycles. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my 15th year of teaching, so maybe that's self-apparent to me. But the whole language versus phonics fight is a fight that like, we went through in the middle 2000s, and it sounds like that fight is coming back. Um, Ashley, I'm wondering, who are the factions on each side of that fight? Like, who are the folks who are, who are like, we must do phonics, or the folks who are like, whatever, not phonics is whole language, I think is the other mm-hmm. side of the ledger? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've, they've coined a new term called balanced literacy. Um, so they don't really use the word, the term whole language anymore. Um, there's a, um, a professor, I think she might be at Columbia, Lucy Calkins, who has come, who um, has published curriculum that's basically the balanced literacy um approach and they're widely used and um and she's come under a lot of fire from these like science of reading folks that are informed by like neurological studies of how kids brains work and how they pick up language and um and so there's been a lot there's been um studies published by like the university of washington eye labs where they've like put kids in mris and watched what happens to their brains as they're you know reading and learning words and um and so the science of reading people to point to that and say look this is this is how kids learn learn to read and so we need to incorporate this in a systematic way and the balanced literacy folks have you know they have a they have a long history and those books are used in a lot of schools and so there's kind of a reluctance to like move away from that and then the other um issue is that um the science of reading people say that the teachers training programs are not teaching the like phonics in a systematic way and they're not really teaching a reading instruction to to new teachers and so that's a big gaping hole that they have found no for sure for sure um jen you've been doing this reporter thing for a long time do you have any war stories from the phonics wars from the east coast (laughs) 
Um, you know, I, I think everyone was just trying to um, experiment with different ways. I think at Massachusetts, right, we have such a variety of, of schools and, and um, you know, so everyone has different approaches. I think what I learned from like being in classrooms with reading interventionist is that not every approach is going to work for the same child. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that's getting back to Ashley's point of why these screenings are really important, especially screening for dyslexia or other learning differences um, uh, so that you can tailor that approach um, because some students are uh, you know, doing fine and can you know, pick up those literacy skills on their own. A lot of others really depend on that, that, that social engagement, right? You think of like, um, you know, the kinesthetics of, of learning. And um, there's, a, I, I would uh, be in a classroom and I'd see a lot of kids working in small groups at a table, reading to each other, um, repeating things. Sometimes they had audio assistance if, if that was part of their prescription too. So um, I don't have any uh, good war stories about that, but I, I think, I think it was just, I think more and more teachers are, are trying to push for that individualized and, and tailored learning, right? We think about um, that being applied only to special education, but I think you just have to acknowledge that that every student, especially after what they're experiencing now, right, they're all experiencing some level of, of trauma and how that's going to affect our mindset of what we think of the neurological pathways of learning. Um, so I think that's going to kind of revolutionize, I think, any approach to learning that those, those previous, those past approaches, I think every uh, educator, every expert is going to be challenged a little bit this year, these in the coming years. All right. So Jen, going back to you, uh, what's your fourth story? Yeah, um, this is another kind of one of more of those those general ones. But um, I think any, any of us are really keen to look at like the, the Biden-Harris uh, administration effect on education, the education landscape, especially with um, Betsy DeVos being out and uh, Miguel Wait, Cardona Woo! being in. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a that's a real thing, because I think um it, it really politicized a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Um, and, and that Biden-Harris effect, I mean, it, it can can change a lot of, of things, right? Just in the, the past week alone, we, we've seen a little bit of turn on the head. Um, we've been talking K-12, but uh, we can't forget higher ed is, is um, attached to uh, the work that we do as well. Um, uh, and uh, looking at student loans, that's a huge thing um, uh, right now. And so, um, it, you know, there's a return decision on like a decades old struggle um, with, with Navient and Navient's got to, you know, uh, cough up, I think was it 22.1.3 million dollars um, in uh, the, the latest settlement. And that was spurred by the, the current administration. Um, I think uh, they, they can also, um, you know, Biden, uh, again, influenced by Dr. Jill Biden, his wife, um, as an educator who's um, uh, also worked in the, the uh, higher ed setting. Um, it, it, I think that that could influence, again, um, just the way sort of policies are shaped, what's prioritized as education issues, um, which, again, leads to funding. Um, I, I think the administration is also um, trying to change the way we think about standardized testing right now, which is also huge. And we, we think about how much pressure that's put on education systems and students. Um, and uh, so if, if changes, you know, not just local changes, but national changes are, are made on that, um, that, that could have a profound impact. 
Yeah, if, if I had a list right now of, of my own that I was keeping, uh, on my list would be how the college board and IB are going to handle testing this year. The answer mm -hmm. is they're going to handle it terribly, but that would be on my list for sure. <laughs> uh, Jen, well, do you have any experience at all uh, covering the current appointee for the Secretary of Education? Um, I, I don't, I, I do know that he's from the East coast and from Connecticut. Um, yeah. and, uh, so, uh, aside from that, my, uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Joy Rizmovitz has, has, uh, been covering that, uh, as, as well. So I, I'm looking to her to kind of steer me in the right direction for, for coverage. Um, but I, I'm really curious to see, um, what kind of conversations, what kind of influence it's a, it's a big role to step into, especially because DeVos, she was kind of the last one standing in that cabinet. So she had a, a long tenure of influence. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Ashley, pivoting to you, what's your number four? How are U.S. history and civics going to be taught? Um, you know, in, in Seattle, there's been a big push for ethnic studies to be rolled out district-wide and um, frustration with the slow pace of that has been, you know, one of the things that was um, that led like the NAACP Youth Coalition to call for Denise Juno to step down. Um, and and I think that there I would say that there's been a growing push to address issues of, um, you know, our country's deepest flaws and systemic racism uh, in the classroom. But at the same time, we see it's become so political um, during the Trump era and with the 1776 commission. And I just wonder how these issues are going to be covered in places where you have more of a, you know, divided populace, say rural or suburban Pierce County. I just, I just think it's, it's really fraught. I wonder how teachers are going to navigate it and handle um, students who disagree or, you know, teachers who maybe are, you know, coming from a, a right-wing political viewpoint. I just, these just seem like really fraught times for those uh, topics. And, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say, Nate, about that. Yeah, I actually did a segment on Cairo talking about this. And I'm of two minds about this. Like, when I looked at the crowd on the Capitol on January 6th, I didn't see 17 and 18-year-old kids. Right. Like 17 and 18 year old kids organized in 2019 against gun violence. Like mm -hmm. that's the kind of fight that they've organized around. Uh, not saying there's not conservative 17 year old kids. Obviously, there are. But the problems and what ails America is not a failing of youth. It's a failing of adulthood. Right. Like essentially this generation of, of kids, high school kids today are the generation of mass shootings because of congressional inaction. And now they're the generation that's losing basically a second year of school because 40% of the country are dickbags and won't wear masks. And so there's a lot of talk about like what we need to do with civic education with kids. But like th when I look at society today, the kids aren't the problem. And so like is there room for improvement civic education? Yes. Like uh, is a lot of history taught by the gym teacher in school and not done especially well? Yes. But like are, are, are the kids the problem in American society right now? Like hell to the no. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I've, I've served on panels and, and, and different committees about civic education and like obviously important to me. It's my mission. But like when I stand in my classroom and hear my kids, even my conservative kids, like the conservative kids who I teach are more thoughtful and nuanced and less authoritarian and more libertarian, live and let mm -hmm. live kind of conservative kids. Like I – I think that 
there's work to be done, but we're trying to put the failures of adults on kids. And that always, always bothers me. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and I, I'm feeling you on this one, Nate, like I spent uh, a lot of my time, um, the, like hearing these voices, my passion, um, in reporting, I'm always trying to look at how we work that in. So, um, yeah, I was, um, covering the, um, uh, week of action that kicks off today here, um, or actually yesterday in the U.S. It's this week, and it it talks about um, how you can make Black Lives Matter at school. Um, and I spoke with a student and a teacher, um, Alexis Mumburo, and um, is the student, and and Aaron Herta is the teacher in the Tequila School District, and how they've been working together, and like. But Alexis and some of our, my other students that have been taught, I call them my students, like I have like so much pride in our youth, but um, like that they have been working at these issues since like grade six, grade seven. You know, I, I back in uh, when I was in the East Coast, I covered the Sandy shootings and I got sent down to Connecticut with that. And, you know, I think about the, the little children that I had to try to profile um, who lost their lives in that and and what age they would be now and what would they would have to say if they had that mic. I think of, you know, the, the kids from, from Florida, um, from, from all over. And then this summer with, um, you know, just being surrounded in an area of, of violence and climate change. And what, what do you, what do you, what are you trying to teach them about the world? And I think what you're hearing, um, and, and, uh, uh, Seattle Public Schools um, director uh, Brandon Hersey um, uh, recently said that to his message to decision makers was if if you can share that power or step back and hand over that power to youth, the better our school systems and our civic systems will be. And and if you're not if you're not offering youth a seat at the table and what you do, you're doing something wrong. I mean, it, you know where where Ashley is, where where I am at. Both of our organizations have realized that, and we've started passing like you literally have like the the take the mic series, right, Ashley? And we have student voices, um, and and other media outlets are are recognizing that that we need to step back and and listen. It's not just about asking them questions, but letting them take the the lead. Um, and and because they're going to know best the impact that has on them. So who better to inform your policies and your, your decisions than these youth? And they've been through many adult things. So you can't just treat them like quote unquote children um, that they're going to have immature answers because these, this is a generation that's had to mature like at, at, lightning speed um it's it's wild yeah for sure all right so let's take a break here and when we come back we'll continue our top uh, five list and also uh i want to share my story that i'm really curious about and hearing you talk about and that's the uh the status and fates long term of uh of juno in seattle schools so we'll be back Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. It's no secret that Tacoma's real estate market is off the charts right now. And whenever I have a question about what's happening, I take them to everyone's favorite pod auntie, Marguerite Martin. I trust her for so many reasons, but one of them is that she's not trying to sell me a house. After 16 years helping Tacomans buy homes, she's now a professional real estate matchmaker. That means her entire focus is getting you connected with the best agent for what you need. She helps you find experts because no agent is good at everything. Marguerite knows all the agents and she knows their specialty. 
tell her what you're looking for, and she'll help you swipe right for your perfect real estate agent. She helps me and my wife find an amazing agent to sell our condo downtown. And when we are ready to buy our next home, we'll turn to her for a match again. Best of all, getting a referral doesn't cost a dime. The agent pays Marguerite a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing that you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. To get started, visit movetotacoma.com and hit the contact form. Thank you, Marguerite, for getting Channel 253 up and running and your ongoing support of local media. And we are back. I want to thank you as always for downloading the show and giving us a listen. Uh, These conversations about education and civics and politics are near and dear to my heart and also near and dear to the community. Speaking of conversations, I swear this time on the next episode, like no kidding, we're actually doing it. We're recording our conversation about cast. And so if you have read or listened to cast, uh, Get your thoughts, get your tweets in. This is your last chance. You can has- hashtag Nerd Farm Reads. I'm going to be joined by the president of PLU. I'm going to be joined by Aaron Jones. I'm going to be joined by uh, the always present Hallie Kanigi for a conversation. And then I'm going to record a second segment with Logic Amen, the vice principal at Lincoln High School, about the importance of this book. And so I swear to you this time, we're recording our cast podcast. Get your thoughts in. Speaking of... Uh, I would also like to remind you that Channel 253 is a labor of love, and we would love your support and your membership. A membership to Channel 253 costs $4 a month or $40 a year, and membership gets you access to a bunch of things, including our memberly Slack. Uh, our member-only Slack this week opened up a new room about stonks. <laughs> And like following all the mess with GameStop and I'll, sorry GameStop and uh, and Dogecoin. And if like you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably better off. Uh, also, there's a new, there's like a really fa- fascinating conversation happening in Tacoma News. Like the Channel 253 member Slack is a place where highly engaged citizens of the region come to have conversations. If you're a highly engaged citizen, join the network and join the conversation. Also, if you join, you get access to Off the Record, which is Doug's podcast where he talks to guests and hosts off the record for extended conversations about like the shady parts that don't make it to the tape. And so if that appeals to you and it should, channel253.com slash membership. All right, back to it. Uh, Jen, your your smile cracks me up. Um, Jen, what's your number three story you look at? Um, yeah, you know, I think just before we we took that break, I, it kind of was a perfect segue because I was thinking about leadership in a lot of ways, right? So I was just talking about how like you should take the the you should let youth take the lead, but also like there's very real leadership change that's happening um, in in the region um, when it comes to decision making in the education landscape, obviously. Um, the the Juno transition. Um, so right, there's a, a, a contract right now out to that's being negotiated with with Brent Jones, bringing him back. But then there's this this search that um, you know maybe we 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 don't always think of um, school boards and the 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 influence that we have. Like it can be a local issue, but I mean this is a a big opportunity for I think the the school board too because they're the ones who are in charge of hiring the next superintendent and what are they really going to look for taking into consideration all the calls for change that are happening across their districts and and I think just across the country um, uh, because it's 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 a significant part of um, uh, you know what's to come and and how you're going to handle what's to come and and um, 
the the channel you carve um, can go one way or, or another, right? Um, you could stick with the status quo, or um, maybe you're the the change maker, the the leader that comes in and, and shakes things up and and really um, makes some of the 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 progressive things, supports some of those those changes that happen. Um, you know, uh, I, I was talking with um, Tracy. Castro Gill the other day and um, from Washington Ethics Studies now. And, um, you know, there's the, that's a conversation that's been happening for a really long time, too. And what does it take to actually, you know, push over that hurdle? And, um, you know, one of the things she, she said to um, in an interview with South Emerald was that it was the idea of like, you have to transform, reorganize and restaff. That, that's a bold move. And you've mm-hmm. got to be kind of ballsy to be able to, to do that. So who's going to be that? That next leader, um, Ashley, you've been here longer than I have, so I would love, and both of you are, are know the landscape better than I do, so I'd love to hear your takes on, you know, leadership who might be the next superintendent. Oh, <laughs> well, well, just just in, in leadership and what are like the need, leadership needs in general too. I mean, it the thing the more I think about Seattle Public Schools and the more I learn about it, the um, the more kind of. I don't know, mystified. <laughs> it just seems no, that's, like that's such, right a, answer. That's right answer, such yeah. a rigid bureaucracy that mm-hmm. like it, it, it's impossible to, um, to make it, to make it move. You know, it just, it just seems like it's this, this fixed thing. <laughs> um, I mean, I, in terms of like the pandemic response, like that I would say personally, kind of the biggest disappointment that I had was seeing this idea for outdoor education. Um, like the, the admittedly, maybe the board put it out as an aspirational thing and it didn't have that much structure, but it, it just got bogged down in red tape. And by, you know, four months later, after all the nice weather was gone, you know, they had just gotten around to approving one program with four kids in December. You know, like that's like it, 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 it was kind of eye opening to me to see how um, how these systems that have been built up are just unable to to adapt and, and be flexible. So I don't know who is the leader to, to come in and change that and shake it up. I hope they find that person. Well, and I'm struck by the fact that the Seattle superintendent job has become a revolving door and basically like they're on their seventh soup in the last 15 minutes. Like Juno was hired with all this fanfare. She had a great resume. She was the first Native American person to be put in the position and she announced her resignation in December 2020. Like Mm -hmm. Seattle is eating, is chewing up and spitting out good people. Mm -hmm. And I... I, I don't know who takes that job. I don't know who would want that job. Mm. Uh, we've seen resignations of school board members. We have a union who rightfully is concerned about its members. Mm. We have parents who are rightfully concerned about their students. Like that, I, I, would, I would rather be almost any job but that job. Like nobody sane would take that job, I feel like. Am I crazy here? No, I mean, I, it's, it's a tough job on a good day. <laughs> so like, I mean, you know, to take that on now, especially in the context that you just laid out, Nate, about the revolving door nature of, of this, you know, particular um, district and, and what what does, you know, as you, if you're a candidate, like how, how do you prepare what you're going to, you know, walk into, step into, however you want to put it, Um 
you know, these are, these are questions I think for whoever's doing the hiring, like has to ask themselves too. And how are they going to have a reckoning with being honest about that? Because it's not like any big secret, right? Like, so they also have to be accountable to say like, what are you going to do to to keep me here and commit and work with me to make Hmm. the changes that we need for, for students and teachers and families? I mean, that's, that's the goal of education, right? Is to, to, um, you know, take care and, and, raise students, um, you know, acknowledge the family needs that they, that, you know, meet families where they're at and, and make sure that your teachers are happy. So they want to stay and do their job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have answers for that. Like, I mm. really don't. I really don't. And like to Ashley's point, like the more I dig into and engage in Seattle, like in this, in the SPS SEA, like back and forth, like the more lost I am, honestly, it's, it's, mm. it's a hot mess. It's a hot mm. mess. All right, Ashley, your number three was burnout. So then what's your number two? My number two is, um, are we going to see a permanent, like, uh, you know, embrace by some, by more people of online school? So, um, you know, because in the, in the summer, some people were looking for, uh, you know, an alternative to what the districts could provide in terms of remote school. A lot of people enrolled in the, um, in the public online schools that are run by these for-profit companies, you know, Pearson and K-12 Inc. So those Washington Virtual Academies, Connections Academy, those schools got a lot of um, students. And and we're also seeing the Highline School District, they're going to start their own Highline Virtual Academy that, um, from what I've seen, I think they're going to um, prioritize students from the district, but then also um, accept students from outside of the district. And then we saw Tacoma create Tacoma Online, and they have not said if they're going to continue that into the fall. But I do hear, you know, there are families who say that they really value this and they like the flexibility. And some, you know, I've heard some students of color who say that it is a relief not to go into you know, school buildings where they might be subjected to discrimination and racism on a daily basis. And so it can be uh, a relief to just, you know, work from home and um, and have more control of your education uh, and be spared that element of it. Um, And so, yeah, I'm wondering. And also within that, like, will we see more of a um, incorporation of online Um, education in the regular classroom you know there's been before the pandemic there was this trend toward blended learning or personalized learning we saw that in some charter schools uh, where they'd like have each student would be doing their own playlist and the teacher would be more of like the coach or guide so is that where we're moving toward more in regular you know brick and mortar public schools Mm -hmm. so I'm curious to see what how that plays out no, for sure. One thing that's stuck out to me is how the folks who so prior to the pandemic, the loudest advocates for online learning that I saw were Republicans who basically like want to undercut public education and particularly like teachers unions. And those same people now are the folks screaming the loudest about reopening schools. So like legitimately some of the folks who I saw in Olympia lobbying about online learning and introducing legislation to get funding to pilot online learning are now the folks who are clamoring the loudest for schools to reopen. And it, it's, just, it's always fun to watch somebody show the ass, honestly. It really is. Those are lawmakers or lobbyists? Lobbyists. Lobbyists. Well, lobbyists and, and like nonprofit groups. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> 
you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, my, my other question around like online learning and, and remote instruction too, is like, where's, where's the data that it's working? Um, you know, sometimes it, it is a good in concept, but is, is it giving students like the, the, it, the information that they need? Does it have like the, the outcomes Preach. that we're, we're, we're expecting um, for our students? And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the whole, right, we have to remember that online learning was happening before the pandemic too. Like, you know, there were the online, you know, schools like you know, tech has been around for a really long time. Um, and, but, um, and, and schools for, you know, or um, online experiences for students who had to do credit recovery or, you know, um, pregnant, pregnant teens, things like that. Um, uh, and, and so, but what happened with that connection? Like, did we take what we learned from those experiences and then apply them to the current situation? Um, and, you know, how is that exchange happening? And, um, you know, I haven't been seeing a lot of strong evidence about that, but that's definitely something um, I know we'll, we'll be looking at and looking forward to, to actually like see that evidence. No, for sure. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when I think about my experiences in online learning, my basic goal in each class at this point is to, can I have a good conversation where students feel hurt on issues? Can students be uh, active in that conversation? And can I make them laugh at least once a period? If I can crack the whole, whole room up at least once a period, then I feel like that's mission accomplished right now because <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it's my job to teach, obviously, and like I'm doing teaching, but their like their their well being is more important to me, honestly. Mm-hmm. All right, Jane, you're number two. Um, yeah. So uh, again, I'm throwing out kind of these blanket themes here, but um, my number two is looking at at some of these policies and transitions to policies, and which ones will actually like be carried through. So like just as I was coming on board, for example, there was the referendum 90 vote. Um, so how how is that going to be rolled out in schools? And, and when we're talking about um, online learning too, like is that something that's going to actually keep families home? Um, um, or are there other issues that are going to, to keep families home? Um, uh, you know, there's also bills in the legislature right now to extend learning. So, um, you know, are, are we going to have um, year-round learning? Is that going to be a thing as a way to look at, um, you know, uh, catching students back up and, and, and making sure they, they um, got what they needed? Um, so, I mean, there's just a whole host of, of, of policies to kind of watchdog this um, uh, this legislative session and also in the, in the long term, you know, how it's, it's one thing to pass a policy, but how do you implement it? And that ties into funding. Um, is the funding going to be there? Because I think across the educational landscape, there's always been, um, unfunded mandates, right? Um, so are you giving teachers and schools, um, districts the resources they need to teach these new things? Um, you know, years ago, um, from, from what I was learning, there was a financial literacy policy passed, um, boy, do we need financial literacy now, but boy, are not all schools and, and students getting that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we, how do we catch up on, on that? That's, that's critical learning, um, uh, at hand. And, uh, so yeah, again, I'm throwing these blanket issues out, but I think they're extremely important. No, for sure. For sure. I, I'm going to do an episode in the near future about financial literacy. It's one of those things where, I'm having very at 41. Yes. I'm having I'm having a lot of boy. I wish I would have known when I was insert age moments right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Yes. Ashley, turning to you. Ashley, your number one story, folks should pay attention to. Um, I I mean the thing that I 
feel is a big looming question mark is what is school going to look like in the fall after um, the adults presumably in school buildings are vaccinated. So um, a lot of parents are asking, you know, will school be able to open normally? Will there be five days a week, you know, back in school, even if the kids aren't vaccinated yet. And we're getting kind of some confusing signals um, from like Seattle public schools in a budget document talked about modeling for hybrid or even remote in the fall, um, which is very worrisome to a lot of families and, um, and people who, you know, have been pushing for reopening are like, well, you know, okay, maybe right now is, hard when the virus is at such high levels but if all the adults can be vaccinated why couldn't schools open you know um with masks and um and so on so that's what i'm trying to figure out but at the same time i'm wondering like if if schools won't commit to that are we going to see continued declines in enrollment because enrollment in the September last year dropped, you know, I think more than 3% year over year statewide. Mm -hmm. It's lost another 1% through January of this year. So people are pulling their kids out, whether they're going to private school or they're homeschooling or they're, you know, um, uh, moving out of state even. You know, I spoke with one mom who's picked up and moved to Florida because they're offering in-person school. So, Ooh, yeah. Florida, though. It's, a fl- yeah. it's Florida. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, there's sunshine right now. Like, that doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, and if, if budget, if uh, enrollment continues to go down, then school budgets will be hurt. And what does that mean? Does that mean layoffs of teachers? So are we seeing kind of maybe not a, you know, crippling of the public education system, but it definitely a weakening going on, um, which I think is concerning. Uh, if Yeah, Ashley, for sure. If I was making my own list, uh, one of the things that I would have on my list is what is the state legislature going to do? Like there's a financial calamity that's like right there. Like the session started and I have not seen like budget estimates and I have not seen revenue projections, but like I'm assuming it's all bad, all bad, all bad. I mean, I think it's actually not turned out to be quite as bad as they were expecting last summer. Okay. But, um, right. But no, I mean, in, in school budgets, because of enrollment going down, those are hurt, you know? So yeah. Jen, I turn to you. Yeah. Um, so my my last theme that I'll I'll, I'll throw at you is um, justice. Just the 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 matter of of justice, um, because I, you know I think another thing affecting school enrollment is just trust. Um, trust mm-hmm. that you know students are going to get their due process. Um, there's an investigation, um, you know, uh, in in Seattle Public Schools, and I think into other schools too about did special education students get um, the services that they needed uh, when the uh, school buildings were closed, and um, so that's under investigation right now. We have the uh, the um, investigation that. Uh, it's not directly related to schools, um, but um, a big part of it uh, with Eric Holder and the uh, Seattle Children's um, Hospital are, you know, our families of, of color being treated the um, uh, the same way or differently um, when they're going to get medical care and right and health is a big part of being able to show up for school. Um, so that's why I, I tie that in there. Um, 
And, uh, you know, again, um, you know, we look at justice, uh, we can't forget our incarcerated student population um, and uh, what that means to for their access to, um, you know, have a better chance at, at life. And I think, um, again, um, that's when the education system can really shine is where they can change these horrific situations, these really challenging situations and let people um, grow and thrive. And, and if we're not delivering um, you know, this fairly equitably in a meaningful way, um, if we're not paying attention to those populations um, that, that need those extra layers of support and also need to be heard. Um, I think, you know, the more I talk to, to families here, um, especially families of, of color, it's just, there's this cycle of frustration and it's a long cycle that that's that's spanned over decades centuries really of um just not being heard um not not having their needs met not being understood um and you know you know and then your your child gets labeled because they have a behavioral problem or something like that when it's just they're just not getting the service that they need or they're not they're not giving a chance to advance the way they need to um, where, you know, um, there's a lot of research around uh, black and brown children, especially being held back in lower level courses when they really, um, you know, need to be in, in, in advanced um, courses. And are they getting that, um, that attention? And so that's why I put justice as my number one, because if you don't have faith and, and trust in your, your school system, that they're going to educate you fairly and equitably and, and hear you, um, and that, that goes for teachers, um, you know, get a, whether you're a professor or whether you're a K-12 teacher, if you're not feeling like um, you're, you're being heard and, and that um, you can you can call out, you can be safe to call out, um, you know, kudos to KUOW who did the Viewridge story on um, the case of the eight-year-old Jaleel who was apparently locked out in a, a courtyard um, for behavioral issues uh, on their own. Um, and if that family doesn't get justice, that, you know, that teacher was withholding information for a long time out of fear of retaliation, you know, who else is, is fearing that um, for not stepping up? And I think, you know, that's a critical issue. And, and that's why I'm putting it down at number one. No, for sure. Jen, what cracked me up during your response was, is that every question you ask, the answer is no. <laughs> so like, is this group getting justice? No. Our special ed is going to serve? No. It's like, just no, 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 no. And I think that kind of demonstrates why justice is at the forefront. It's, it's laughably like pathetic, right? It's laughably sad that um, yeah. the answer is, is no. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm a police accountability person. And one of the things I believe is that journalism, education, and law enforcement are essentially like three careers that undergird society and have to be done well. And I'm going to argue that in this moment in 2020, 2021, that we're failing in all three areas in a lot of different ways. And it's, 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 it's frustrating for me because like I, I care about those things and I, I want people working in those career fields to be held to high standards, be held accountable. And when, this is, when it doesn't happen, it, it's frustrating to me. All right. Well, so what do you want us to do now. better? <laughs> what do you want us to do better, no, Nate? No, no, you, you, you <laughs> listen, you, the beat reporters at local news outlets aren't who I'm talking about. No, like, I'm, I'm not talking for compliments, but I'd love to hear what you yeah. No, I, I, I will go off after we finish this conversation for 25 minutes about like the New York Times editorial board and their curatorial choices and editorial choices. I will go off forever about both sides as a fit neutrality and I will 
go off for a month of Sundays about David Brooks in particular. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap, we'll wrap. Um, <laughs> before we have that tangent off microphone, uh, how can people follow both of you on the socials? Jen, how about you first? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I'm definitely on uh, Twitter. So that's uh, Jen Smith underscore I-N-K. So it's Jen with two N's, uh, capital S and S-M-I-T-H underscore I-N-K because there are too many Jen Smiths out there in the world. Um, so I had to pick something a little creative. Um, so I'm I'm there uh, primarily. Um, and then, yeah, you can uh, always just... Um, email me jensmith at seattletimes.com. I haven't uh, upped my Insta game yet when it comes to, to journalism, but, um, you know, it's something I'm hoping to do, but um, uh, I'm, a, I'm around. And uh, if you uh, give me a shout, um, you know, I'd love to set up a good old fashioned phone call. I love talking to people in the real time, in the real person. How old are you? Phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I say I'm old school. I just, old soul I, I i like hearing people's voices <laughs> i'm like what do, like do you but, do you read the comments too like uh do you the comics or the comments <laughs> <laughs> which could be one and the same they they uh, can be really laughable <laughs> no. all right ashley how about you how can people follow you on the socials um i, I guess i'd steer people to twitter ashley a-s-h-l-e-y-k gross g-r-o-s-s um and yeah, I also have not upped my Instagram on the for journalism. So yeah, Twitter or email agross at knkx.org. If you're listening to this and live in the Puget Sound area and you see something in your schools that you don't like, public, private, wherever, uh, send these folks a note for sure, for sure. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated, stay home, get takeout. Be good. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. So, Ashley, do you want my 20-minute media rant? Or are you good? Uh, how about, do you have a, like a 10-minute media rant? Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.